Have you ever wondered what it's like for other people to go through a life event? Is it the same for them? Is it different? And how? My name is Dr. Nikkel Rogers-Webb. I'm a psychologist. I'm doing a podcast with my mom, Dr. Elsa Rogers, Dean of General Studies. And we're going to be talking to different people about what it's like to go through a single life event at the same time. My favorite brother-in-law, I'm and Linus Rogers, who would be with us on, on, on the podcast. He has led a very interesting life, and um, I'd like him to introduce himself to our listeners. Okay, my name is Linus Rogers. I went to primary school in Manipur, Alsi. Um, went to secondary school at St. Benedict's College, La Romaine, in Trinidad. Um, I dropped out of college at Form 3 of a five-year program after the third year um, to join the oil refinery as an apprentice, where I spent five years training to be an instrument technician. Um, following completion of my instrument technician, um, which was back in 1972, I also did the equivalent of the high school um, equivalency and immediately resigned from that job and went to Fairleigh Dickerson University in, in, in Teaneck, New Jersey, where I did a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering um, with second class or summa cum la, uh, magna cum laude, and then went to Stevens Technical Institute in New Jersey and did a master's in electrical engineering. Worked with Bell Labs doing research in telecom for 1977 until 1984 and got the, the desire to be back in a warm climate and migrated <laughs> back to Trinidad where I took a job as a manager in a research department in the telephone company. Um, over a period of three years, was able to with two other persons um, acquire a U.S. Um, um, a U.S. Canada and Trinidad um, patent and an invention in the telecom industry, and however moved out of research after some years into network, and then went into did a diploma in human resource management, and in the last eight years of my working life with um, Telco, I was an executive reporting directly to the. Um, executive officer with responsibility for corporate admin and um, regulatory matters, which is where we negotiated for cell towers and spectrum and that sort of a thing to, to usher mobile phone into the country. During the period, I spent um, four or five years as chairman of the airports authority and other than that, I spend most of my time in social works and Vincent Lepore. Oh, wow. Yeah, I do have to say, although I've known you all these years, I learned something about you this morning. Nicole? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, well, I didn't know any of those things. I mean, I know you as my uncle. <laughs> and <laughs> we, we joke and things like that. So I think, actually, I want to go back because um, to tell our listeners a little bit about our family, education has always been super important and when you talked about going um and dropping out of like your five-year college program the first thing i thought was oh my gosh my dad would have killed me and so i wonder how did you decide in that moment 
this is not what I need to be doing. Because it sounds like that was the right choice for you. Actually, I did not decide. It was decided for me. Ah. What happened in those days is if you did not pass that exam, your parents had to pay for you to go to secondary school. I passed and I went to the same school that my eldest brother went in. And I went in and once that for that once D, C, A, and A special. I went in and a one C, then I went to two A. And from two A, I went to three A special. When you do that, you actually skip a year. So in effect, I went from form two straight to form four. Oh. However, I was not, I did not do the extra work to pick up the year I had missed. So when the 40 of us did the exam, I came to the first out of 40. Mm. My parents and they, looking at my elder brother who went to the same school, said he didn't make it. My school was known for football. So they gave me an option, and the option was, you will go and learn a trade. And uh. I cried for months, but I had to go. I went and I did the exam. And I came, it was about 100 and something boys at the exam. I came out in the top five. They accepted me. I was too young to start the program. So for one year, I served as an office boy sweeping the floor in a refinery lab and picking up garbage in the lab and washing bottles for samples before I could start the program when I reached age 16. And in that year, I sort of said, hmm, these guys are like my father. Am I going to be like them sometime in the future? Mm-hmm. When I went into the program, was 50 of us got in. Um, to go to instruments, you had to be in the top 10. I came out in the top two. So I got to pick my choice instrumentation. And again, as we were going, it's a four-year program in instrumentation. And I saw guys like my father and elder guys who lived in my area. And they were all waiting for a foreman to die or to move to get a promotion to get a few dollars more. Mm-hmm. When I finished my five-year program, I was making about $10 less than my father who was mining 10 children. Mm. And I'm saying, is this what my future is going to be? And somewhere along the line, and maybe had I stayed in secondary school, it might not have happened, but that experience and exposure to elder men listening to their life stories and all of that changed me. And I decided, no, I wanted to have more control over my future. So I finished. They shortened my apprenticeship program by six months before I passed all the exams. And just to be on the safe side, I waited until this September the 26th of 1973, which was the official day for it finished. And on that day, I was on a plane to New York to go to school. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that while I was in my last year, I applied to universities in the States, only with the equivalent of my high school diploma, mm. which I did on the side. And when I started my college, my first year and a half was revision because of the work I had done on my own. The first year and a half in math, physics, chemistry, English, all of that, was revision for me. Well, can we... Oh, oh, actually, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, because the thing is, I sort of understand that because, Mom, you and Dad kind of talked to me about the different education system. It's more along the lines of how the British do it. So maybe Mm -hmm. one one or both of you can explain to our listeners kind of what it is to have to sit exams to get into a secondary school and kind of that whole process, because it's very different from how they set it up in the U.S. I, I think I think they start training you for the uh, exams, at least in my time. I don't know if they do it like that uh, right now, Lynn, in Trinidad. Where no, you have to sit, 
If I go back to when it was, previously what happened is being a British colony, in the early days, the colonizers took control of the education system. So they were either Catholic churches, schools, Anglican schools, Methodist schools, things like that. Uh, Muslim schools, Hindu schools. Mm -hmm. And back then the government changed to uh, local government in 56. And between 56 and 63, in that six year, five year, six year period, the government signed what it called the Concordat, which is a, an agreement with the churches because the government only had very few schools. Basically, it was uh, well to do and those who are affiliated to churches could go to the other schools. Mm. They signed that agreement which said, we, the government, will pay for 80% of the spaces in those schools that you own. We will help fund your school and we'll make those 80% available to the nationals. Because you had, even then, you had less school places than children. Oh, wow. What, you did, what they did, they put something they called a common entrance exam in front of you after primary school. So at age 11, you took an exam that will determine the top portion of that will get to go to free secondary education which is from 11 to 18. If you did not make that exam or you did not get a pass there, your parents and they were then required to either pay for you to go to a private secondary school and pay for you to go there, or you go and learn to sew, to be an auto mechanic, a gardener, carpenter, something like that. The curriculum was similar, just one was from the University of Cambridge, one was from the University of London, both out of, London, of England. Okay. And when you had London passes, it meant you went, you had it privately and you paid for it, for the schooling. Cambridge came through the free secondary um, system. And you had to have five O-levels, which was math, English, and three other subjects, which was considered equivalent of a high school diploma. Okay. So that to get a basic job, you needed five O-levels. Yes, Elsa? Yeah, but one of the things that you forgot was the way they prepared us for the common entrance exam. In, in as far as you, you started preparing from about four, uh, standard four or so, and you went to take what I call lessons. Um, you remember that? You went to but, take lessons, and then you had lessons in the morning, lessons in the evening. Sometimes your parents would pay for you to take lessons from a teacher or so, so that you'll be prepared for this exam. And, and most of the time, you were just, you spent time just preparing for the common entrance exam, and you had little or nothing else to do. At least my experience was this. They didn't, they didn't even let you go for recess sometimes. You stayed in the classroom all the time. You, let's say school started at 9 a.m. You would get to school maybe around 7.30. And from 7.30 to 9, you were sitting in the classroom preparing for this common entrance exam. Which I, simply... I, I had a little different experience. <laughs> yeah, my experience was tough. Well, my sister, she did not go secondary school. Mm -hmm. She went, she finished primary school, stayed in the primary school until she was 15, and they taught her to be a teacher. Eventually, she went to training college, so that when I started primary school at age four, 
I was one year under age when I started primary school. She was what you call a um monitor. A, a monitor in the school. So she got me in the school at age four. Of course, I had to stay down one year because I was too young to move with the others. Lessons for me never took place until standard five. Ah. So I went to school. After school, I went home. And I had to beat the books at home. And when I reached standard five in Monipo, I'll see. I reached standard five in September. I was in 5A, which was the highest class in 5ABC. I was taken out of Monrepo. Again, I had no choice and sent to San Fernando Boys Government in Standard 5C, which is almost the lowest level in the Standard 5 class. So I was like coming from the highest class to the lowest class again with no choice. The reason being that my cousin, that was a friend of my cousin teaching that class. So I went to her class all day in the school. And every evening while I waited for my elder sister to pick me up from school, I had classes at her home, which was about three blocks from the school. Ah. In the, between September, October, and um, I think it's March or so when the exam was, we used to have monthly, term, monthly class tests. And I came second once. All the other times I came first, and I, this time I got second, I got a whopping in front of the entire class for coming second. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so different from, from how we do it I, here so, now. So that my training, my classes was done kind of a slightly different. Well, yeah, very, very different. As, 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 but as, in today's date, in today's as present, children start from almost standard three to standard four. Mm -hmm. And all the way to standard five, so, so two and a half years, they take lessons to practice for this exam. And this is now not about getting a place in a secondary school, it's getting the school of your choice. It's like you are doing this exam to ace it, like how people will do for to get into Yale or Harvard or Stanford, as the case might be. So it's that similar kind of a competition now to get into the school of your choice. But this is happening now between ages nine and eleven. And you know, just just to kind of um, to, to kind of explain to our listeners, when we say standard, we are it's it's the equivalent of a grade. Standard one to five would be grades one, two, three, four, five. Now, if we if we just change directions for a little, um, we uh, we talked a bit about uh, we haven't mentioned yet the coronavirus and how um how Trinidadians are dealing with it. Uh, just to kind of give us an idea of what's happening in another country since we are in the United States. How has the um, lockdown, um, how has that affected Trinidadians? Um, the lockdown, and we have been locked down since early March or mid-March. Yes, early March. Mm -hmm. And it has affected basically the the lower levels in the in the economy and also the adults from the point of view that uh, the lower income bracket person did not have the savings to tidy them through because they were living paycheck 
to paycheck. So the instant they missed the paycheck, um, either a rent wasn't being paid or a payment wasn't being made or they didn't have money to buy food. Now, the government did some things in terms of appeal to businesses to continue to pay people even if they were home, but that was a moral suasion. It was not a legal enforcement. Um, and you found that um, we did not go to a strict lockdown. By force, there was no force of law that could have kept you home. It was a moral suasion that if we do not do certain things, it will affect all of us and our health system will be overwhelmed and we will all end up in serious problems. And I must say that um, citizens have responded to that by staying home, um, sanitizing, isolating, quarantining themselves. As a country, we have had something like about 118 confirmed cases of the virus, of which something like about 70 or so came from a cruise ship that went to Guadeloupe and had confirmed COVID and came, and they came in. Uh, we have had only about maybe, and all the rest were related to people who, who traveled into the country. And our country has been closed to anybody coming in since the, about the 20th of March. So, oh, so they locked closed. the country? The country is locked. You cannot come in. We had some people who went to Dubai, a Dubai cruise, 33 of them. They, when they realized what was happening, they flew, they made it to Barbados before the deadline passed. And they were in Barbados for almost 40 days. They couldn't come out, come into Trinidad. We would not let them in. They only came in about two weeks or three weeks ago. And when they came in, they were put on a quarantine, right? So we have been fortunate in that while we have, some people have broken the, the, what was asked of them. By and large, we have stayed at home. People have taken it very seriously in terms of washing their hands, social distancing, and things like that. And we have not gone to what we call community, community spread. Oh, wow. And a lot of social organizations like St. Vincent de Paul, um, Field Living Waters, and others have stepped forward and have stepped in into the gap of taking care of those who cannot feed themselves. So you found that we have like 62 um, um, conferences across the country, and we have been distributing through the church to the, to the community food stuff to those in need, as well as people like from other islands who are here and cannot get back home and in need. They have been, we have been doing that. So the social sector has stepped forward significantly to help fill that gap. What the church has done is some of the projects that it had on stream, it delayed those and diverted that money to buy food stuff to give to people. What I find really interesting because um, your son told me that everything got shut down, that everybody is, even though it was a moral suasion, everybody is really participating. And so I find that so interesting because in the States, it's been really hard to get people to just kind of think about, even if it doesn't affect me, it affects so many others, let's just, you know, kind of stay home. That, that has been hard because people want to stay open. And obviously there are economic reasons, but it sounds like in Trinidad, everybody just said, okay, let's do this together. It didn't just happen just so. 
the, the Minister of Finance and the Prime Minister took the front in that respect and they spent pretty much two to three weeks every day for six days out of every seven days in the week, they have about a one or two hour press conference where they update people on what, but they spent the first two weeks or so explaining to people, there is no way we have the supplies, the hospital beds, or the medical personnel if this is to get to community spread. And if it, if it gets to community spread, a lot of us will die because in our country, in the Indian population, um, diabetes is rampant okay. as a lifestyle disease for that ethnic group. In the Afro, it is hypertension and heart issues, okay. right? So it is recognized that if it is allowed to get into community spread, almost none of us sacred. And they convinced everybody that it's not about what one person is, what all of us do will help us as a country to survive. Right now, in the whole process, they have taken some places that were built for being a hotel. They have taken some place built for, foot, for football. They have taken a shutdown hospital and reactivated them to create beds. So we have created something like about 600 beds for people with COVID. Mm -hmm. However, we have only had to utilize about 116 where we had to quarantine. And right now, you might only have about 10 persons in there. We have had eight deaths. But even so, they have brought in doctors and nurses from Cuba and made room because the view is that if and when we start opening the borders, we are not sure what will happen. So we're trying to get everybody to get into a new mode because they would have convinced everybody there is no going back to the status quo. Mm -hmm. The future will be quite different. We'll have to maintain our social distances. We'll have to also be mindful of people with coughs and sneezing and runny nose and temperatures and things like that because this is going to be around with us as we open the border. We are not sure we get something like around 5,000 visitors a month mm -hmm. or people passing in and out of the country. And you're not sure. We don't have begin to have the room to quarantine. One of the significant things we did in Trinidad is whereas in the States you were and other countries, you quarantine at home. Mm -hmm. Basically, anybody who were tested and confirmed positive, regardless of how healthy or not you are, you were in a state facility for, for quarantine. And you never got out until they test you twice. You had to have two negative tests before you could get back out. So but after it after you get better, they will do one test. If it's negative, they wait a 48 hours, do a second test. And only if you test negative after the 48 hours are you allowed to go back and mix. And even when they send you home, they ask you quarantine for a further two weeks before you start mixing. People who came into the country and did not show any temperature or anything like that were initially being quarantined at home. And they, they self-quarantine, they called it. And what they found is that people were not observing self-quarantine. Mm -hmm. So then what we, when, once we locked the borders, anybody who came in, like from Barbados and Suriname, or a, a, a testing rig in Suriname, the state put them in a facility and quarantined them for the time and tested them before it let them into the population. I think, I, think I, I, I am proud to be a Trinidadian. When, when, when I hear how effective 
um, the government has been in quarantining or, or let's say in, um, in controlling the spread of the disease. Um, I read an article that, uh, that says that uh, Trinidad is second in the world as far as big, its readiness to reopen the country. Do you believe the island is number one? Excuse me, number one. <laughs> okay. Um, do you believe that the island is ready to reopen right now? No, I'm not. Why if not? we open the country and you don't have a very heavy screening, the issue that we are very much concerned about is the asymptomatic person. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is happening is the government has... 500 test kits to test for the level of asymptomatic persons in the country, but you can't force people to come and test. So what they have decided to do is to go to facilities that are volunteers where you have groups of people and only those who exhibit a cough, tightness of the chest, sneezing, things like a temperature, things like that, they will test to see what level of asymptomatic person exists in the country. Um, that is supposed to be happening, that is happening all now, and it is expected that by Monday, at the Monday press conference, we will be told whether we will be looking to open, and it's expected that if they open, the first thing they will do is open circulation of people within Trinidad and Tobago, keeping the borders closed. Mm -hmm. And they will see if after a week or two how that is going, so that the projections are, if that goes well, the borders might be progressively open starting maybe the end of this month. So right now they are testing for the level of um, asymptomatic person. In effect, what they're saying is if those people have been circulating and the virus has been passing and people have, bodies have been dealing with it, we want to see how close we are towards getting to herd immunity. Are they testing antibodies as well? No, they have the view that the antibody test is not a reliable test. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's, that's the, like, I heard that it's something like 60 to 90% right. accurate, which is not, that's too much of a swing, statistically. Right. Um, so, but I just kind of wondered about if, if there was any way to, you know, kind of evaluate that piece of The thing. Minister of Health said that um, based upon the, all the information, the, the, it, it leaves too much of a door open. Mm -hmm. for us to rely upon, so they're not relying upon the antibody testing, okay. right? Um, they have agreed with WHO to do, uh, uh, to be part of a study with Ramdesarin, I think it is, um, yeah. interferon, and I think it's two or three other possible vaccines or cures to be part of that trial. The only problem is we're running out of people who are testing positive to try it. <laughs> Good problem to have. But we are part of that. Um, and they, how they rank them, Ramdesrin is the very first one. They have interferon, which is a drug um, developed by Cuba and was known from day one, but I'm not sure the West have stayed away from, from using it or talking about it. Mm -hmm. But those two are the top two. And they have, I think it's two, either two or three other drugs that they agreed with WHO to be part of the, the trial for that, to see if, if that could be a cure. Now, what about within, you mentioned that they were gonna, probably going to allow people to move about between Trinidad and Tobago before opening the country to people from outside. But what about kind of within the country in terms of 
grocery shopping and the other kind of essential things that people need? How has Trinidad handled those things? Okay. Um, in the back, okay, if I just run through it, which was Trinidad, travel between Trinidad and travel in Tobago. Oh, because not between. Initially, Tobago had no COVID um, positive persons, and Tobagonians did not want Trinidadians to come across and being COVID. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Until they got a few cases, right? Um, everyone was asked to stay at home. It was not a state of emergency. It was not that you could not go out. So what happened is there was no law that said I couldn't go any part of the country. However, as people began moving around, the police started doing something which they call um, total policing, which is where they'll put roadblocks all over the different streets. And they will stop you and ask you, which they are allowed by law to ask you, where are you going? And they'll try to morally persuade you. Don't go there, go back home except you're an essential worker. Banks were, you have to be six feet apart in the bank, so you saw long lines outside the bank, and the banks, a lot of the banks put some deferral and making payments and some of the penalties, and try to encourage people to do bank-to-bank -bank transfers and pay things remotely. Hardwares were, first of all, only allowed to open half of a day, and then they were given a whole day three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's still, now they could open um, every day, but up to Saturday, but half of a day. Um, malls, shops like that were shut down. Um, grocery stores were allowed to open, again, keeping social distances. Everybody had to install a, a sink with um, um, liquid soap and hand sanitizers and papers and you had to wear a mask and wash your hand before you could go in. So as you reach the grocery door, you had to wash your hand with soap, dry it with paper towel and you have to have a mask on to go into the grocery. And the grocery hours were limited. All the malls, all of those things, um, they allowed the entire construction sector was shut down, except those building hospitals and things like that were shut down. Um, all the other things in the country were basically shut down. All the um, plumbers, masons, carpenters. Um, they allowed the fishermen to fish and, and bring their fish, and the people who go to buy the fish had to do social distancing also. Mm -hmm. right? So they allowed you to get access to food. Basically, then they allowed pharmacies to open up to a certain hour. And even then, they had to put things for people to wash their hands to go in um, and to limit how many people could be in. So like when you're going to a small pharmacy, you might only be able to have two or three persons in there at a time. So you have to wait outside until somebody come in, comes out before you go in. Okay. Mm. Tell me, I mean, like I said, I think Trinidad was very effective where that's concerned. And um, you being a responsible citizen, I'm sure you obeyed all of the, um, all of the control issues that, are, that the government set. Is there anything that you miss? I know the freedom to go out would be, um, let's say, top of the line, but is there anything that you miss during this time of... Um, quarantining, self-distancing, any of those things? 
No, not particularly, because what I did is, um, as I, again, when you stay home, you run out of things to do. And I basically look for projects around the house to do. Um, and I changed my routine in terms of when I get up, what I will do, what happened is Netflix and I became a little bit better friends. <laughs> <laughs> right? And I mixed my day between getting up and spending some time outside watering plants and doing some of the work around the house, gardening and stuff like that. Um, lazing through part of the day when the sun is hot and stuff like that. And in the night when I want to relax, I will go on, on, on Netflix. Um, what happened is a lot of people discovered Zoom and thought it's like something that just came out, not knowing that it's around years and years and years. But a lot, a lot of people discover Zoom, so everybody wants to have a Zoom meeting, a Zoom meeting, a Zoom meeting, things like that. Um, but for me, again, since I have retired, I have sort of a turn down in terms of the activities and things. I kind of have it in such a way in my mind that my health is before everything else. Mm -hmm. So it becomes easy for the rest. And as I said, it is not other folks. We are the age people. <laughs> <laughs> we in that high risk group. <laughs> it's funny because I happen to know some people who don't seem to remember that. <laughs> I am quite aware of that, you know? And as a matter, and what struck me is that my daughter works in a hospital and she called a girl in her unit was tested positive. And before that, I was saying to her, keep monitoring all these signals and look anyone you see, right? So then she said to me, I said, okay, keep monitoring yourself. Then she said to me, she got up in the morning and her voice was raspy. She was losing her voice. I said, that is not good. Then she said, she feel a little temperature. So I said, look, mom. Don't worry about it, head straight to the hospital, let them test you. She went, they did not, they could not, they did not test her. They said her oxygen level was high enough that she didn't have to be tested. Mm. And I spoke to another niece of mine who happened to be a doctor because I'm saying, well, my eldest daughter is now COVID positive and I'm seeing what is happening in the States. So I, I want to get, and she said to me, Uncle Lynn, the best place at home because in the hospital, if she's there, she's exposed to other diseases and people who might be more sick than she is. And there's absolutely nothing they could do for her. They have no cure, no vaccine. It did not register with me until then. And then I said, oh, oh, it has to be prevention. Yeah. So any thought I had in my mind, that's that little conversation that afternoon, because you know, you're thinking, you go to the doctor, they always have a cure. In this one, there is no cure. All the doctors are doing when you get in there, depending on how severe you are, I got the impression they're experimenting to see what will work. And if something works, fine. If nothing works, well, then you might depart this earth. Right? So that was a life, a changer for me, certainly for my daughter, because she understood like me, what the parameters were. And certainly all of those who I came into contact with down here, I sort of shared that experience because it was a, it was a game changer for me. It, it changed the level of seriousness. I dealt with it in my own mind more than anything. So you find if, I'm, if I have to leave the house, I always have a mask in my back pocket. I have some a sanitizer in the car. I have gloves in a little pouch I walk with, right? Mm -hmm. I don't make, I avoid making contact with people. 
right? More so than even before, right? Before um, February, so you know, no, mm -mm. I'm not even bouncing um, elbows. Yes. <laughs> when I reach home, my uh, my wife make my my shoes stays out the front door. I have a slippers by the front door, and I go straight to the washroom. And the outfit that I have is taken off there. It goes in the wash, and it's washed only wear on once and washed immediately. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's <laughs> you, you, you mentioned something about um, now that you've retired. Um, what has the, the transition from work to retirement been like for you? Um, it was fairly easy for me in that when I was two years before I retired, I said to my secretary, when I reach my retirement date, I want to be able to walk out of here at most with my briefcase and a small box. Oh. So that I was, I started deloading my office of any personal items or any things of mine, such that when I get to retirement date, I did not have to go back for anything. And on my retirement date, I picked up my briefcase, I picked up an envelope, and I said, anything as you all see in this office is all you, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> everything I had to have, everything was removed. Again, I operated, when I became an executive, I operated in a concept where I always walked around with a number in my head. That number was based upon the level, I, the, the CEO could have simply said to me, he no longer have confidence in me and I could have been fired. So I always calculated a, a retirement package that if I come to work a morning, you tell me you want to fire me, I have, an, I have my worth in front of me. If you pay me that, fine. If you don't pay me that, we'll meet in court and I will beat you to the pulp. So that when I came to my retirement date, I was ready and I walked out the door. And I, I went back after about six months because they called me for a retirement function. And after that, I've never been back in the building. Really? How do you how do you fill your retirement day, your your post retirement days? Social work, um, helping um, NGOs, right, and mm -hmm. politics. Between those three, have enough. Have enough. So, for example, right now, um, the executive officer for the Deaf Association. Um, was fired or resigned or whatever it was. And they asked me, I said to them, I would do three months, six months for you, simply to turn the organization and put it on a ground of proper footing. But I, I really don't want, and I will only come there three days a week. Even though I told them that I sometimes go more than three days a week, but I committed to them three days a week. And I have about a month and a half, two months to go if so much. But I, 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 because it keeps me active, but I don't want anything that if I don't feel to go, I have to go. So, yeah. so I'm still involved, but and my mind is still working and I'm trying to keep it going as long as I can. You know, just how much gray I have, right? <laughs> oh no, not at all. <laughs> not everybody, I think I have the most gray among the, the Rogers boys. Oh no, you wouldn't like to see your brother right now. Uh, it's really funny, and I think my daughter is going to interview him because she's very confused because one minute his beard is dark and the next minute it's white and she doesn't understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so she plans to interview him, Gung. Can you explain <laughs> why this happened? 
I would love to hear that explanation. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm waiting for it. <laughs> Do you have any other questions for our guest? He's been very informative. I know. I think we actually got to everything, but there's one thing. Um, you know, I think about your parents, my grandparents, a lot and how they were... Um, very resilient and creative. And I wonder, what do you think the two of them would say about all of this, this pandemic business and, and this very strange time that we're all living through? Well, I think one of the things you always try wanted to make, to ask all the children to try as much as to be independent, right? So regardless of what you face, right? Maintain your belief in your God, and if you look deep enough, you'll find a solution and a way. Um, you notice the very first thing I turn to is the garden, mm -hmm. because it, mommy always used to say, you could be poor, but yet not poor. You could be poor, but not hungry. Because mm -hmm. if you do gardening and things, you could always do things to be self-sufficient, right? So for me, I will, I will think that they will look and say, hmm, we have done well. We have sort of put certain things into one generation to try to get them to pass it to the next generation because they always view their rule as not necessarily about them, but about them providing for the offsprings that they had. And I think that would be the measure that they would use to see for us in terms of, um, as how we handling the COVID, when the issue was positive, apart from following the advice of the doctor, that her private doctor, my brother gave us some home remedies, which is what's circulating among the family, <laughs> to boost the immune systems and things like that. All of that I see as a legacy from the parents and them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, they believe in trust, but verify. <laughs> <laughs> and as mommy will say, the eyes of the master fatten the cow. <laughs> oh, I like that. I do. Um, oh, mom, we forgot to ask him our one question. What? Um, which is, now that you've lived a lot of life, what would you tell your 15-year-old self if you could go back in time? Oh. Because I say, if I have a 15-year-old son, please send me to the madhouse. <laughs> That's a different answer. <laughs> no, no. I said if. So here the issue. Uh -huh. what, I will, what, what I will say is you have one life to live, but there are some foundational things you need to pay attention to. Don't worry about it, whether you call him Jehovah, God, Allah, Muhammad, whatever. You have a supreme being. Find an anchor, wherever that anchor is in a supreme being and a belief. Two, think not about everybody around you, but what you would like your future to be and start from now heading a path today. It might not be a straight line. It might take you left and right, up and down but at least you have something you're aiming to, not something that mommy, daddy, brother, or sister want, but something that you want that makes you, as a person, feel satisfied with yourself, right? It matters not how high or how low, because all the things that we accumulate, 
will eventually leave us or we would leave it. But the peace and comfort you know of you being or doing what you want to do will always stay with you while you walk this earth. And the rest will come, all the rest will come around that. Wow, that's a good answer. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that is very good. Oh, that's, a, that's a good note to... You make me figure like I'm a test. We're asking every one of our guests the same question. And we want to see how, how, um, how they each answer that question. So your answer is um, a bit different, but... We like it, right? No, but, if you, but if you go back to me, for example, you'll notice I said I did not want to leave Monrepo, but I went to government school. I had no choice. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to leave St. Benedict's, but I went to um, Texaco. I had no choice. Mm -hmm. right? But I made a choice when I was in Texaco to leave and go and study. Right? Mm -hmm. So it, made, it, 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 it allowed me to sort of uh, follow my dream which has changed as I go along. But the good and the bad that comes with it, I live with it because it's, I'm doing what I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you, you got to some really good places. So, you know. Some because I was forced when I was a little child and didn't know better. Some because I made some decisions. All of it get put together. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, Lynn, you, it has been... A pleasure chatting with you. Um, you've given us some some nibbles of wisdom, which I think that our listeners will certainly appreciate. And uh, we wish you the best in the pandemic in Trinidad. I mean, as I said before, I'm proud to be a Trinidadian. I'm proud of what's going on on the island, and I hope that everyone continues to follow the rules set by the government. And of course, I wish you and the family all the best. Okay, thanks, thanks. And I hope when your people listen to it, they don't say that's one mad cook. Send you a copy though. Yes, thank you so much for, for being a guest, Uncle Lynn. We really welcome, appreciate Nicole, it. Welcome, Nicole. Welcome. Thank you. Have a good one. In our experience of reading and looking at the local news, we hear a lot about what's going on with the pandemic here at home, but not so many firsthand accounts of what other countries are doing and how they're handling the pandemic. So I hope that you enjoyed hearing a firsthand account out of Trinidad and Tobago. It was also pretty cool to hear my mom and Uncle Lynn talk about their experiences in their school system as school-aged children because that was really different from what I experienced and what it's like here in the States. So hopefully you will stick with us for the rest of the season. We have a researcher, a priest, and another physician coming on the podcast to talk about their lives and their experience with the pandemic. Don't miss an episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate and subscribe to at the same time on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. That way, you won't miss a single episode. We'd love for you to connect with us online. Our website is sametimepod.fireside.fm. You can also follow us on Twitter at sametimepod. Music by purpleplanet.com.
Copyright 2020 by Nikel Rogers Wood, PhD, and Elsa Rogers, PhD.